we'll continue reading from Genesis chapter 41, beginning in verse 37. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. So if Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh set, took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him, uh, um, had him ride in a chariot as his second in command, and men shouted before him, Make way. Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift hand or foot in all Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name uh, Zaphnath-Panah, and gave him Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, to be his wife. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's um, presence and traveled throughout Egypt. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. Joseph's stores uh, are stored up huge quantities of grain like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping record because it was beyond measure. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim and said, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. The seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the other lands, but in the whole land of Egypt, there was food. When all Egypt began to feel the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food. The Pharaoh took all the, told all the Egyptians, go to Joseph and do what he tells you. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the countries came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the world. Ascends the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray together. Oh God, this is your word that we come before. And we ask simply that as we humble ourselves before it, that you would cause it to accomplish all that you have set out for it to do that it would not return empty, back to you empty and void. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless the hearers as well as the speakers through the power of the Holy Spirit and your word. And all this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What makes a ruler uh, a good ruler? 
what makes a person worthy to submit to or be ruled by? Uh, and I don't ask these questions to be provocative about any uh, uh, current political situation that may be on your mind. Uh, that is certainly not my intention. I ask this question because often what takes place with those in power is that they are, uh, uh, as they are there to serve, uh, they often do not serve the people under their rule, but themselves, using their power for their own good, not for the good of those who they uh, are over. In uh, the Lord of the Rings series uh, by uh, Tolkien, Tolkien gets at this question about a good ruler. One of the main problems that happens throughout the whole uh, uh, book is that the whole of Middle-earth is in need of deliverance. The world, in fact, needs to be saved, not only through one particular hobbit throwing a, a ring into Mount Doom, but the rightful king must be restored to his throne in order that uh, the world might be made new again. The rulers of men seem to be uh, nothing more than the shadow uh, of greatness. In the city of Gondor, the last great city of man, it has begun to fall, in and fall into ruin. And the steward who rules in place of the king, awaiting the king's uh, return, you get to uh, this impression of a man who is only concerned with himself and his own greatness and his own power and might. But what the world desperately needs is the rightful king to come. A king who cares for his people, who's concerned with their life, who rules justly and mercifully with healing in his hands in order that the world would ultimately be saved and restored. The dominion of the whole earth must again be subjected to the rightful king who serves his people. And the fate of the world depends upon this one particular man to bring salvation to the rest of the world. He cannot be a man who seeks his own good. He must be a man who walks a particular path of humiliation. And that is always the path that marks true greatness. It is always a path of humiliation. And we'll see this fleshed out. What makes a great ruler as uh, you come to our text? And our text opens up this morning. And the first thing we see is a disturbing dream. A disturbing dream. Chapter 41 opens up and it picks right off where chapter 40 left off. Uh, these two are very closely tied uh, together. It's like coming back into the movie theater for part two of the movie after intermission. Uh, chapter 41 really rounds out or completes the story that began in chapter 40. Chapter 40 was this chapter about two men who belonged to the house of Pharaoh, to the very court of Pharaoh himself. And these two had dreams, and Joseph interpreted these two dreams according, uh, uh, to the, according to the will of God. He accurately verifies that God himself is speaking in these dreams. And yet Joseph, you'll remember uh, uh, the chapter ends, and he continues in the place that he was before. He continues to remain in prison for two more, two more years. Joseph will be in prison in the house of of Egypt a total of 13 years at this point, with no apparent change looming on the horizon. And yet, as our text opens up in chapter 41, it doesn't focus on Joseph so much, but rather on Pharaoh and what is going on with him. Pharaoh, this man who is king of Egypt, who rules over the land from 
uh, uh, from all or rules over the entirety of this land, a land that historically is a land of constant prosperity, a man who at this time is either seen as the deity himself or at the very least a, a half deity. He is one who has been birthed by God and he is himself a son of God ruling upon this earth. I mean, here in our text, we see the powers that be, the ones who are at work uh, or, or the powers of the world in Joseph's days. Here is the ruler of perhaps the wealthiest land in the ancient Near East. And as the camera sort of focuses in on uh, this particular ruler, we learn that Joseph has had, or excuse me, Pharaoh has had a dream, one that disturbs and troubles him greatly. And in this dream, Pharaoh finds himself standing on the edge of the Nile. And as he stands on the edge of the river, seven cows that are fat and beautiful rise up out of the river. You know, you got to love uh, the language here. Some of you uh, may not know what a beautiful cow looks like when you look at it, but we all know a, a fat cow is a beautiful cow, right? Uh, you know, it is a beautiful thing to behold uh, what will be, uh, 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 you will be feasting upon. And as these seven beauties rise up, they start to feed on the grasses of the Nile, something, uh, you know, fairly normal for the cattle in Egypt to do. But what is not normal are the seven thin cows who appear right behind it, who are unwholesome and undesirable in appearance and are thin. In fact, uh, verse 19, Pharaoh tells Joseph, I've never seen such ugly cows in all of Egypt. I mean, these must be pretty rough-looking cows, <laughs> And they come up behind the first fat, beautiful cows and, uh, that are, are, are beautiful to behold, and eat, they eat them. Uh, a very strange dream. Uh, and yet verse 21 tells us that after eating them, these cows look just as thin and ugly as before. And this shocks Pharaoh. He startles him awake. Uh, uh, so much uh, he's shocked by what he has seen so much that he wakes up from his dream. Uh, I know it may not sound much like a nightmare to us, uh, but it certainly shook this particular man up. But he does eventually fall back to sleep again, and his second dream isn't any better than the first one. Pharaoh again finds himself standing on the bank of the Nile, and he sees seven grains of head growing on a single stalk of grain. It's a very unusual image. It basically means it's a very blessed situation. Seven is a number of perfection in the ancient Near East, and here he has seven grains upon a single plant, implying that uh, the increase is sevenfold from these plants that have been given. A very unusually high amount of grain that would be found on a single plant. When all of a sudden, seven grains sprout up behind uh, these, this original one that are thin and scorched by the sun and the east wind. And you can picture weathered vegetation. We've seen it, uh, you know, something that has been scorched and dried up and wilty behind these seven good grains upon a single stalk. And the same thing happens as before. These seven great uh, or good grains are devoured and are eaten up by thin and scorched grain. And the text tells us that Pharaoh dreamed these dreams and he awakens and he is deeply troubled by them. Now, I mean... The question has to become, at least for us, why would these dreams disturb Pharaoh so much? I mean, I, I really doubt that if any of you went home and slept tonight and dreamed this exact dream, that it would disturb you in the same way it does for Pharaoh. You might think, well, that's really odd, and then go right back to sleep. Um, 
not one of us would nearly be as troubled or downcast as Pharaoh is right now. So what is it about Pharaoh's dream that troubles him so much? Well, Pharaoh's dream is laced with imagery about Egypt and the prosperity of Egypt, and he senses that it is being threatened in some way. Everything that is particularly good about Egypt, as far as prosperity goes and the worship of the gods of Egypt, everything that is particularly good seems to be coming under some kind of attack here in his dreams. The dreams start at the Nile River, which is the source of all life and power and fertility in the Egypt. Egypt is entirely dependent upon the Nile for their whole way of life. It is too dry in Egypt to depend on normal rainfall throughout the year. And so the Nile is irrigated for crops and the herds all line the banks of the Nile, receiving from it its lifeblood. It is the mother of all living in this particular land. It is basically worshipped in Egypt for the life it gives and treated with godlike reverence. For she is the mother of all the living in Egypt. It provides abundance to all of its people. Just as Pharaoh, who stands by the river, this one who is in the dream himself, is considered the one who blesses the people with his and this particular abundance. You see, in this time, if the land prospers, it's attributed to Pharaoh as though his reign, he reigns in the power of the Nile itself. These two are very closely linked. Pharaoh's power is the power of the river. And in this dream stands Pharaoh, this one who is basically a son of God on earth, next to the Nile as it produces fat and beautiful cows that are devoured by seven ugly cows, the ugliest cows that have ever been seen by Pharaoh. And here Pharaoh stands and he is unable to do anything about what he sees. He seems to have no control in this whole uh, situation, this world. The prosperity of Egypt seems to be threatened, but he cannot do anything about it in his dream. And Pharaoh takes, and dreams takes these imageries of Egypt's abundance and life and reduces them to nothing but an ominous sign that trouble is coming. He just doesn't know what. He knows that these are not a good thing that he is experiencing. And the second dream only adds to this ominous, looming danger, hanging the, the sword that is hanging above his head, prepared to drop at any moment. Because you see, the sun scorches the grain of the earth and that, uh, or, or, uh, the, the heat brought by it causes this east wind that creates the bad grain that devours the good grain. You're seeing an image of Ra here, this Egyptian god of the sun who is scorching the vegetation of Egypt. It is troubling to say the least. So it's no wonder as the gods of Egypt seem to be... Uh, 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 um, causing some sort of trouble or, or are uh, at least presented in such a way that nothing good is coming from it. And the, the prosperity of the land seems to be trouble. He wakes up and it's no surprise that he is deeply troubled so much that he calls all of his attendants to him to seek a solution. It's as though all these things that can make Pharaoh great have turned against Pharaoh and he dreams them twice, again, revealing that this is from God, a pattern that we have seen about dreams throughout the book of Genesis so far. And you cannot help but sense uh, the inadequacy of this man's own power over the world. And I believe he, he is beginning to sense it 
himself as well. And he is being humbled. He is being lowered because he cannot even understand a dream. And yet in the midst of this man's trouble, in the midst of this dream that is causing so many problems for him, we see a young Hebrew being raised. A young Hebrew being raised. Pharaoh, because he is so troubled, as I said, he quickly calls on his magicians and all the priests and wise men, basically anyone Pharaoh might uh, uh, turn to who could possibly know the interpretation of this dream and explain them in a way that is satisfying to him. He calls all of these throughout all of the land of Egypt into his presence, and yet no man is found who can explain his dream in all of the land of Egypt. The son of God on earth cannot figure it out, and no one else around him can either. And suddenly we see the step, uh, or the cupbearer step back in, and he says, this day I remember my sins. Uh, that is the word he uses. For surely he has sinned against Joseph, and he has sinned against Pharaoh by not bringing it to his attention earlier. And he says, hey, you remember that time uh, when you put me and the chief baker in the pit? Well, when we were in there, we both had these troubling and disturbing dreams as well. And this young Hebrew who was caring for us, who was the servant of the captain of the guard, interpreted both of those dreams for us. And they turned out just as he said he would. He, was, he has the power of interpretation. Very quickly, everything suddenly changes for Joseph. You know, this, we see this one who has been waiting and languishing for 13 years as a slave in Egypt, suddenly there was this just flurry of verbs and words going on for it. It says, you know, Pharaoh sent for him. He called him. They brought him out of the pit, this thing, this moment that we have been waiting for and longing for, for years that uh, Joseph has been looking forward to. And then they shave him, or he is shaved, and changes his clothes so that he might enter into Pharaoh's presence. And all this is done very quickly, basically as quickly as Pharaoh can get him there. Because the God of Egypt, or the gods of Egypt, and ministers of Egypt have no power to understand Pharaoh's dreams. So he must, interestingly and ironically, depend upon a young Hebrew for truth. All of Egypt's gods are being put to shame here. And in order for Pharaoh to find truth, he must humble himself before this servant, this man of the nation of the Hebrews, who worships the true and living God. And Pharaoh does so. He humbles himself. And Pharaoh asks Joseph, hey, uh, you know, I, I hear you're pretty good uh, at interpreting dreams. Is that true? And Joseph, without missing a beat, basically says, apart from God, I cannot answer you soundly. He attributes his gift to God immediately. These are the first words that he speaks to Pharaoh as he enters into his courtroom. You get a sense of the character of this particular man, how he has been tried for 13 years in slavery, and yet the first words out of his mouth are giving praise and glory to God as the one who is able to interpret dreams. His life is one that is marked by his God, even in the midst of a people and in the midst of a land that have been hostile towards him and his God and have wronged him unjustly. And so once Pharaoh tells him what he has dreamed, as he rehashes what he has gone through, Joseph says, these dreams you dreamed, they're the same dream. 
God has revealed to you what he will do, Pharaoh. He is uh, preparing you for what is about to come. There will be seven years of plenty in the land, and they will be followed by seven years of great famine, so severe that whatever plenty happened in the first years will be entirely forgotten. It is fixed by God. It is certain that this will come because the dreams were repeated. Even with that sentence that he speaks, he is verifying that the two dreams that Joseph experienced many, many years before are certain to come about, and they are about to be fulfilled even before our eyes. But then Joseph goes beyond what he has been called into the presence of the king to do. He has only been called to interpret the dreams of the king. And he begins to instead give advice to this king, very bold in the presence of this king here. And therefore, Pharaoh, because this is true, because this is a fixed thing by God, uh, uh, take a wise and discerning man and allow him to prepare for this situation and put men under him throughout all of the land that there may be a large po- portion of the produce be preserved for when the good times have ended and when our time of need is at hand. And so, this, uh, uh, so that verse 36 tells us the land might not be cut off or be forgotten, be removed from the land of the living so that it may uh, remain in the land of the living. And Pharaoh looks at Joseph <laughs> and uh, he looks around and he says, nobody else could be discerning or could discern this dream for me which means that there's no one else who is more discerning or wise than this man who clearly has the Spirit of God upon him. And just like that, Joseph is raised from the pit, and he is promoted to rule, and then he rules in order to bring life. Rules in order to bring life. Again, It's simply amazing as you come to this text how quickly the events turn for Joseph. We've witnessed 13 years of trials, of suffering, of pain brought by his sovereign God. And suddenly we see this rapid succession of action and he is raised In the eyes of Pharaoh is one who can discern. And after interpreting this dream for Pharaoh, he is being raised to his right hand as the second most powerful person in all the land. He is put over all of Pharaoh's house. Pharaoh tells him, only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And he sets him over the entire land of of Egypt to rule it. He gives him a signet ring of the king, basically saying, Anything you determine to do is good, or that you determine is good to do, do it. And I am giving you my authority to do so. I trust you entirely with the responsibility of the land. And he has this ceremony where Joseph is given a new name, one that means God speaks and he lives, very appropriate title for Joseph. And he is clothed in royal garments and we see his old life passing away. This life of death and, uh, and suddenly he is being resurrected. Something new has indeed come for Joseph. Here is this young Jewish man who has been rejected by his own people. He has been uh, unfairly in prison for a crime that he did not commit. And he is given a new name and clothed a new clothing. And now he will rule over all the land 
of Egypt. Sounds like another story I know. But as we listen to this, we think, wow, what a lucky break, you know, for this guy. You know, I'd love to be that guy. Uh, I wish I could be as wise and discerning and richly blessed as Joseph here. I mean, who of us wouldn't want to be wiser than we are this day or more godly than we are? I, I think that, you know, if we were to uh, uh, ask that question and ask for a show of hands, we would raise our hands to these. But people of God, how does this happen for Joseph? I mean, he wasn't changed overnight. He did not become godly. He did not become wise and discerning immediately. You remember what kind of man he was back uh, uh, many chapters ago, 13 years ago. He was a man who was very proud, one who uh, 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 ended up getting himself thrown into a, a mess of trouble because of his pride and arrogance. And yet he has indeed matured and he has become wise. But how? We know the answer. It's right there before you. It is through the path of humiliation that God brought him on. This path of trial and temptation and suffering. All of these things that God has brought into Joseph's life life have been preparing him for this particular point in time. Where now, and only now, after he has walked this particular path, he is able to rule wisely and discerningly, and is put over all of the land, and ultimately so that the whole world might live because of this one man. I mean, Joseph has become wise and godly and discerning through all of his trials. He's gone through the school of hard knocks. It is the trials God has brought him into or brought into his life that has shaped him into a man who would rule well. And we all say, I want to be wiser and more godly, but who of us wishes to go through suffering to get there? And yet that is the process, that is the means by which God uses in order to raise Joseph up, is the path of being made low that ultimately raises Joseph up. Indeed, in order to ultimately deliver the world, this is the path Christ himself will take in order to be exalted to the right hand of the Father. But before we dwell on that, notice one more significant action in the life of Joseph here. After he is raised, as he is in charge of the land, he is given a wife, and he is given uh, two sons. He's given a wife first uh, of a daughter of this uh, household of a priest. Basically, is given to one who is a, a high ruling family in Egypt. He is brought into the aristocratic life so that it makes more sense for this one who is in the house of Egypt now would rule Egypt as the one in second command rather than this servant who was a Hebrew. But he is given two sons. The first he names Manasseh which means God has made me forget all my hardships and troubles. He made me forget the troubles of my father's house. And the second he names Ephraim, meaning God has made me fruitful and in the land of my affliction. Not after, but in the midst of the land of my affliction. Both very Hebrew names, meaning though he has married an Egyptian, he has not abandoned his God and God has not abandoned him. And yet these names that he gives are very significant names. Think about it. This one child whose name means forgotten, 
saying, God has blessed me so much that I will remember no more the trials that have brought me here. But one commentator points out that the name actually given is a a way for Joseph to remember his afflictions and not forget them. It is not that Joseph wants to forget what God has brought him through or what he has went through and say, well, boy, I'm glad that's over with and now we can get to living life really the way it is meant to be lived. Rather, it is a constant reminder of how God has brought him through whatever trials he faced. Joseph cannot even call on the name of his son without recalling what it is that God has delivered him through, that he has carried him to this point of exaltation through the waters and trials of judgment. Joseph, as he stands on this side of his sufferings, as he looks back through the sufferings that he went through for 13 and, uh, uh, consecutive years, he says what Paul says in Philippians 3. He counts those things that he has undergone, these trials, these sufferings, as nothing compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. And Joseph declares in his sons, these things I have done and endured are forgotten. They count for nothing compared to knowing the worth or surpassing worth of Christ. And indeed, God has made me fruitful in the midst of my suffering. This hardship that I undergo is the... the, uh, place where fruit is born out. And notice then what happens in the text. Joseph is put in charge of patiently preparing for a time of great need and want. And ultimately, as he does so, as you come to verse 37, we see all the earth comes to him to be fed. Joseph had been raised from humiliation to exaltation. He has traveled this path of suffering. His life has been one of suffering and pain in order that through the life of this young Jewish man who was stripped of all his royal glory and has been robed in splendor once again, now all the world through him, both Jew and Gentile alike, may must bow before him in order to live his whole life has been oriented, his whole uh, uh, suffering and pain has been oriented in such a way to bring life to others. Beloved, this is the path our, Christ, our Savior took. This is the path of Christ Jesus himself, the one who gave up the glory and splendor of heaven above voluntarily, who came down and suffered unjustly in complete obedience to God, even to the point of death on a cross. And yet through this path of suffering, through this life that he lived on our behalf, ultimately he is enthroned upon high in order to supply life to the ends of the earth, to Jew and Gentile alike, that every knee must bow who wishes to live before this one. This one who has risen in power to the very right hand of God, who has been given dominion over all the earth. People of God, this is what Adam was supposed to do. Adam was to rule over all the earth and bring it under his dominion. And what Adam failed to do, we see Joseph picturing again, bringing the whole of the earth under the dominion of a rightful ruler. And in a very small way, we see it. It is not perfect. Joseph dies. The dominion will not last. Joseph cannot ultimately do what we see Christ our Savior 
do. But notice what we do see. Dominion is brought through humiliation. And being raised from that humiliation, it's brought about through a death and a resurrection. He rules well because of the path that he has taken. And people of God, that is the story of your Savior who rules from heaven, this one who rules rightly, who sits at the right hand of God, who is enthroned forevermore, this one who has been given dominion over all the earth, not through seizing that power, but through a life that is marked by pain and suffering as he walked upon it. And people of God, surely, as it is our Savior's story, as you are united to him as the living head and you are part of his body, people of God, this is your story as well. Because it is his story. and Your life is hidden in him. It makes all the world of a difference. As we think about this life, as we suffer, as we walk through the trials of this life, as we are walking uh, uh, through this life as one who uh, continue experience affliction after affliction, after suffering, after suffering. Though we have been justified by the righteousness in Christ and are given his righteousness, knowing that, knowing who we are in Christ, knowing we are united to this one who has been, who has, uh, uh, been lowered and humiliated and raised in exaltation, it defines who you are and how you live in the midst of these same trials. Colossians 1 tells us uh, you know, that we were able to do what Paul says in Colossians 1, getting a whole new outlook on our suffering. When he says rejoice, he rejoices in his suffering for your sake. Filling up what is lacking in Christ's sufferings or his afflictions, not that Christ's afflictions were lacking in any way. What Paul means is we suffer as Christ suffered. Surely, if we are united to him, we will suffer. And he was as he suffered for the sake of his people, and so that through us, and through these lives of suffering, some might receive life. Through him who is the bread of the world, the one who feeds the entirety of the world, all those who rest upon him by faith, Jew and Gentile alike, they all must come and bow before this one who is a perfect ruler over all things, who walked through the darkness of the valley of the shadow of death. Dear Christian, he has walked that valley, and you have walked right beside him. If you are hidden in him, and as, he walk, as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, as we suffer in this life, know that you have a Savior who has suffered in every way that we have, yet without sin. This one who stands and now is enthroned in glory. And that is the promise unto you who have died with Christ and your life is hidden with him, is that we will be raised to a newness of life. That is the end result that we aim for, that is the goal, that is where we are going, and it redefines everything for how we live in the moment, in the here and the now, when things do not work out the way that we want them to, when our kingdom does not come, when our will is not done, and we trust and know that God's kingdom is coming and has already been begun in the God-man who came 
And his will is being done and it is being worked out in your lives, bringing you to completion that you may be presented before God without spot or blemish. Dear Christian, salvation of the world depends upon this one man who underwent suffering on our behalf. And our suffering, it is not vain. But it has a purpose. And through it, through this path of suffering that we walk, this we walk this wearisome land, we do have an end goal. And we will be raised to newness of life with him who is our redeemer. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, you who are our redeemer and our friend, we come before you and we ask, God, that you would uh, help us when our feet falter, when we stumble, when we look through this life and the trials that we are experiencing and all that we wish to do is remove ourselves from them. We pray, Father, that you would give us patience, build us up, strengthen us in the midst of our trials, whatever they may be. Surely they are different to each and every one of us. And yet, Father, we ask that you would uh, uh, strengthen us, not because we have been worthy recipients of your love, but because of what you have begun in us, the good work that you began in Christ Jesus. We pray that you would bring to completion in your people, that we may all walk in newness of life and indeed be resurrected, not to death, but to live, to life everlasting in the presence of God. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.